You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Esther chapter number 4. We'll come back to chapter 1, which is where we'll spend the lion's share of our time tonight, but we'll start a new series in chapter 4 of Esther. As you're turning there, uh, some of you who would be of the my geriatric millennial peers out there, uh, as the deer, doesn't that take us back? Uh, that song would have been the song back when I was an adolescent, as our teens are headed to their youth group gathering tonight. And just thinking about the words of that last verse, um, gold and silver can never satisfy something to that effect as God can. And I remember wrestling with that as a teenager. My dream, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, my dream was to be a landscape architect. That was my great ambition. Had it all figured out. I was going to go to Kent State and take the world by storm and redesign everybody's poor attempts at landscaping and uh, the commercial uh, context of that. And then I think the song was saying, I was at a youth retreat, and I don't know if you've been in a setting where they have you put a stick in the fire, that's my generation, and you would say, God, I'm yours, and to burn up for you. And I remember wrestling with God's call in my life to ministry. And I can say, uh, though maybe I have traded out some of the gold and silver that maybe I would have now as a sophisticated architect, um, God is so satisfying, just giving him your life. And if God's called you to be an architect, do that, Okay. But uh, for some of us, we've had to surrender those dreams and do what God's called us to do in other fronts, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, uh, even in this stage of ministry for the Lord. Esther chapter 4 tonight, we're starting a new series, and I will tell you, of everything we've studied recently, I am super pumped about this series. Uh, I think it's going to really challenge your pastor in preparing uh, the study and the sermons uh, already just uh, for this one tonight. And I think it's also going to change your view of God uh, in some ways <laughs> that are good, not changing God, but changing our view of God and uh, picking up on Him and maybe seasons of life that uh, we tend to miss His fingerprints and His activity. So with that in mind, go to Esther, Esther chapter 4 and let's read verse 14, which provides the phrase from which we derive the title for our study. So we'll be looking at this. I think we've got slated uh, 12 or 13 studies as we work through the book of Esther. I think it's 12. Uh, a couple of the books will, or chapters will combine a few of the shorter ones. But look, if you will, in e Esther chapter 4 and uh, verse 14. So we're in really the crisis moment of the book, the pivotal chapter. The Jews are made aware of the fact that Haman, the, the bad guy in the story, is going to attack and slaughter the Jewish people. And in verse 14, Mordecai to his niece, Esther, Hadassah, says this in verse 14, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, at this time, then shall, their, uh, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And notice this rhetorical question, And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so we're looking at over the next several months together on Sunday nights, this study, such a time as this, a study on stepping up, stepping up in maybe a less than quote ideal season. And one of the things I'm excited for us to leave this series with in a few months, I always try to identify where are we going and what is God trying to teach us. It would be this, trying to remind you or convince you for the first time that God has you alive at this moment for a very intentional purpose. It's not to lie down, it's not to give up, it's not to back off, it's to stand up, to step up, and to lean into what God has called you to. And so I hope that uh, you'll consider where that applies in the life uh, setting that God has each of us tonight. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we begin tonight by looking at stepping up in corrupt seasons. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the privileges to gather in this setting tonight. Thank you for what you did in our midst this morning. Lord, we do miss many that are out today sick. I pray you would encourage them. I know having been at home um, not too long ago with illness, Lord, it's just, it, it's, it's different, and I pray that you would just encourage them, and to some that are back tonight that you've renewed. We thank you for their renewed presence in our midst. I pray you'd help our church, Lord, with all that's going on to persevere and to keep going and just to trust you with each of these individual situations. 
Pray that you give healing and grace and strength to those that uh, we long and yearn for them to be back with us. And we pray now as we enter this time of study of your word, as we enter this new series, that you would convince us anew and afresh that we are alive on this planet and in this very moment uh, for a specific purpose and calling. And Lord, I pray that we would step up uh, into that. The men in the room, I pray you would help them. I pray for our ladies and I pray for the young people in the other room tonight that each of us would own the space and time and human history that you've put us that we did not choose for ourselves, but you've chosen for us to impact others as we study this morning through evangelism, um, to stand against evil, to stand up against that which would hurt and hinder your, uh, your reputation and your will being done. We pray that you would help us, give us wisdom in that. Bless this study in this series, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I alluded to it this morning, but we were in Atlanta last weekend, and uh, one of the things we had the joy of doing was ministering to a church there, and uh, God really gave us a favor. I think some of you asked, how did it go your first wellness weekend off-site? And you know, you have in your mind how you think it's going to go, but you don't know, and, and so we kind of put our toes in the water and just to see God really bless and work, and uh, Heidi did. She was a bit nervous. I think she would say that tonight, and God really used her, and uh, you ladies will benefit from her teaching next Sunday. But it was neat to see just that become realized. It's something that's been stirring in our hearts for several years now. And uh, there are all kinds of stories I could share of folks that God used the teaching and preaching. And the pastor, I just talked to him yesterday, and a lot of new counseling that that he's doing out of that. And just excited to see what God's doing in that church. But one of the funny things was, as I mentioned, we got a little bit of snow. So here's kind of the backstory of it, how it went down. So we were eating um, dinner. I had two of my cousins on both sides of my family who live in Atlanta. One of side of the family, my uncle worked for Delta, retired from Delta years ago. So a few of his daughters are still there. So my cousin Tony and then my cousin Jeremy, uh, which would be on my mom's side. So the Tony's on my dad's side, Jeremy's on my uh, mom's side. A couple of my aunts were here today. And, uh, and then one of my roommates from college. So we kind of just had a little kind of just, and none of them knew each other. So that was kind of fun to... To, to have that go down. So we had dinner together, and so we were about halfway through our meal, and all of a sudden, there was just like this hum in the restaurant, and then everybody kind of almost literally, I'm not kidding you, ran to the windows. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, I'm thinking like, you know, major crash or, you know, earthquake or something. And, and I said to my cousin, I said, what, one of my cousins said, what are they doing? He said, it, it's, it's snowing out. Like, like it was like this, he couldn't even say it out loud. You know, I'm like, it's okay. You can, you can say it, you know, and they're just panicked. And so I, I really thought, okay, we must be getting a decent, it was cold, colder than I thought. And I walked out afterwards and literally there's none on the ground and just a little bit on a few umbrellas and cars, all that got everybody all worked up. And so we were talking about that over dinner. I'm like, what is with you people in Atlanta with a little bit of snow? And so we were talking about it. One of the things that came up, I don't know if you remember this story, but back in 2014, they had what they call snowmageddon, which in Atlanta equated to 2.6 inches of snow. Um, we get that on, that's not even a blip on the radar for us, especially now, you know, with the piles of snow outside in the parking lot. But I was, I, so I wanted to try to be empathetic and relate to them. And so I was kind of just trying to understand what was behind their trauma, which you do know in all seriousness, trauma is less about what happens to you and much more to do with how you process it. So something that would be traumatic to you would not be to me and vice versa. Um, and so I, I dug into the story, and here's just a quick summary of it. So on January 28th, which incidentally was the night I was having, it was January 28th, not of 2014, but of 2022. So exactly whatever that is, eight years removed, the city had two, just over two inches of snow, brought the city to its knees. Um, and I remember this now, it became kind of a joke where it literally, you had people stuck on the interstate for over 24 hours straight. Um, kids had to stay at school overnight. Um, that, those poor teachers are probably really still traumatized after that, okay? And just, it had a list of things of thousands of people. And basically what happened, the snow started coming and everybody panicked and tried to leave downtown Atlanta at the same time. And it just, it just, it literally came to a screeching halt. Two people in the church came up to me after I mentioned that in church and said that they, they waited as long as they could in their car before nature called, if you follow the drift. Just sitting in their car after about 18 hours, you do what you have to do. 
and I thought, you know what? I can relate now a little bit more to the trauma that's associated with those four words, S-N-O-W, snow. Um, and so may I just say tonight as we begin, as it relates to especially, I guess the analogy would be this, winter seasons. God's people are not on top of the pile right here in Esther chapter 1. Um, they are subservient to. Uh, much of Jerusalem is in ruins, and we have Nehemiah, and we have Ezra who've gone back to the city. That's kind of the context. But these people are still in Persia. Uh, and it feels like the world is winning, and God and his people are on the run. And yet we see in the story not perfect people, but people willing to step up. And so I hope tonight a lot of parallels to our day uh, will be willing to do the same. One author said this, if God has a six-letter word for encouragement, it is the word Esther during winter seasons, E-S-T-H-E-R. And so through this book, he gives us encouragement that in winter seasons, God is still at work. One other kind of interesting thing by way of introduction um, along the Dead Sea, and I, I meant to have a picture tonight and didn't have one, of, um, remember the study of Qumran, the, the, the scrolls that were found? Do you remember this? Happened back in the 40s was the initial finding. They found several since, but there are these caves up in the ledges and the cliffs along the Dead Sea where they found remnants of the oldest copies of the Bible still in existence, like like were actually the parchment or the scroll and the writing of the scribe on them. And what's interesting about that discovery is how much of it is exactly consistent with what we still have today, God's preservation in, in even our English Bible as well as others. But there's one book missing, and it's the book Esther. In, in the Qumran uh, scrolls, they found every book, all of Isaiah and large chunks of much of the rest of the Old Testament but the one book that's missing is the book of Esther. Now, what's interesting as well about that is the fact that Esther is one of only two books in the Bible that does not include the name of God. So you have Song of Solomon, and then you have the book of Esther. And it's interesting that during winter seasons, when things seem bleak and it seems like everything is not moving in the right direction, sometimes it also feels like God is a million miles removed from where we live and what we're navigating uh, in real time and space. And so into that context, we find now this story of uh, Esther that reminds us that God is still at work. And I will tell you, it's amazing to me. I'd encourage you to read it. Sometime read through the, f the, the few books before Esther and then read the books after Esther. And it's amazing how God's everywhere in the other books and then he just disappears for 13 chapters. And if you feel like God has disappeared tonight, can I encourage you, don't back down, don't give up. He's still moving, he's still working, and he wants to use you as a part of his plan and purpose. And so that's the overview of the book of Esther, and I hope that God will use it to challenge you in the weeks uh, to come. Now, here's the challenge tonight as it relates to our study tonight in chapter 1. The tendency is often we fail to step up for God, especially in these winter seasons of life, because we're trying to warm ourselves, warm our souls, warm our minds, warm our hearts with the same carnal things that the world does. And so before we can step up into maybe some things God wants us to do, we have to first be willing to disassociate from the carnality in our world, the corruption in our world, and allow God to lead us uh, in his will uh, for us. And so the question tonight is this, in a cold and corrupt world, how do we in contrast faithfully step up? Uh, for the Lord. Let's talk about two forms of corruption that are described. If you go back to our text now to Esther chapter 1, let's talk about two corrupt components or characteristics that Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of their day had to navigate and process uh, in this difficult season of Jewish history. Let's talk about two of them in the time we have left. Number one, first of all, let's talk for a few minutes about corruption that is powerful. Number one, powerful corruption. Powerful uh, corruption. Now, before we read verses 1 to 6, can I give you an overview of the Persian Empire, which was not a blip on the radar? You know, we hear of Alexander the Great. We hear of some of the other, the Roman Empire. The Persian Empire was a massive, well-funded, well-empowered, well-endued um, kingdom. To give you just an overview, the setting uh, here is in the city of Susa, 5th century B.C. 
which Persia today would be modern-day Iran. Okay, so that's the region of the world uh, where we're talking about. Uh, the empire was in its day what Rome was to the first century. It was massive. It was overwhelming. It controlled the lion's share of the world. In fact, during the reign of Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, uh, it, it controlled more than 2.9 million square miles. The empire consisted of roughly 44% of the world's population, uh, which at the time was an estimated 50 million people. It stretched from some 4,464 miles from what is now uh, Puncha, India, uh, to Katoram, Sudan. Um, and so the best way I can bring that, because that, okay, what does that mean, would be to take two, if you can look at a map of the United States, breadth-wise, put two of them together, that's the breadth of this empire. Just a massive span of land and humanity and controlled much of that. There was much power uh, consolidated in the Persian Empire. All right, with that in mind now, let's read these first few verses that set the table for uh, the book and the context in which God used Esther. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Um, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. That in those days, when the king, uh, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore or eighty years. All right, let's talk about a couple of things as it relates to corruption that should not distract us from stepping up for the Lord. Number one, stand up when those in power possess great wealth. Step up when those in power possess great wealth. And we're talking about corrupt leaders that also have great resources. Isn't that a deadly combination? Those who have great resources and yet they are, um, they are wicked, they are corrupt, and we see that in our day. We could digress to that in many different directions, but we should be willing in the midst of that to step up or stand up for um, the Lord. Um, when Alexander the Great, which would have been the one who conquered the Persian Empire, when he entered Sushan, when he entered the, the heart of that empire, it's recorded in, in history that he discovered in today's dollars the equivalent of $54.5 billion in bullion and 270 tons of minted coin, gold coins. Massive wealth, just mind-boggling. I mean, imagine, um, you know, my dad did trucking for a while. You could get maybe 16, 17 ton in a dually truck and just do the math, 270. Uh, we just see amazing tons of this gold. So great wealth that was possessed uh, by this kingdom. All right, let me give you a couple things under that as we kind of set the table, and we'll work our way into some of the practical things, but these are all important to understand uh, what Esther and Mordecai were navigating. We see first in verses 1 to 4, wealthy manipulation. The word there is manipulation. Now, it's not stated here, but we know that shortly after this date that's referenced, that Ahasuerus, that the Persian Empire, was going on a campaign against the Greeks. And so it's very likely that the king and his, his political allies were trying to soften up these others they wanted to give to the campaign so to support this campaign. And so he's spending, he's generous in what he's giving, trying to manipulate this crowd into allying with him in a campaign against the Greeks. Um, and so he stages this six-month, the best way I can think of it would be like a Vegas-style extravaganza, just throwing all of this resource, trying to wow the crowd and impress the crowd and numb them to what is about to be asked of them. And so for a full 180 days, um, he hosts this grand party or lavish event there in Sushan. At the end of that, as we see in verse 4, um, he now has at the end of uh, verse uh, number five, and when these day was, days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people, both great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So he ends it with now this more intimate feast of seven days. And so he, he's using his wealth to work his angles and to accomplish what uh, he desires. Um, a truth that our minds tends to forget during frigid times or silent times before the Lord, um, 
What throws us is the manipulations of the super rich who ultimately their manipulations will come to naught. Um, I think sometimes, I don't know about you, I just feel like I don't have what others have. I, don't, I can't bring to bear what others can bring to bear. I just remind you, God is sovereign. And the kings can move around their little gold coins and all their bullion. Our God is on his throne and his will is going to be done. And I think if we saw this for 180 days, we also would have been bothered by the excess and the waste and the conniving. Can I remind you, the same thing is going on in our world today, and yet God's will will be done. And so for us, we have to stand on that. We have to be confident in that even when others uh, have greater resources at their immediate disposal. Now in verse 5, as we read, he now has this more intimate feast. Notice he pulls out all the stops in verse 6. Where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings? And pillars of marble, the beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. So just again, this excess. Number two, wealthy excess. So wealthy manipulation, wealthy excess. Just pulling out all the stops to wow and impress the crowd that is before him. And it's interesting, I would ask you this question. Have you thought about this? Who wrote the book of Esther? Who is the one that is even describing what we're seeing in chapter 1? Who was there firsthand seeing it? I would submit to you, if you were to talk to God about it, and again, I'm not trying to speak for God, but I think based on the narrative, the book of Esther is almost more about Mordecai than it is about Esther. In fact, I would challenge your thinking, who is the main character of the book of Esther? I think it's God who is not mentioned, but I think secondarily, I think in the, you know, the credits at the end of the movie... I think the first name listed might not be Esther, it might be Mordecai, if God's the one directing the script. So it's very likely that Mordecai was the human vessel or instrument that God used to record much of this book. Um, Esther's in the palace, others are navigating other challenges, Mordecai seems to be the continuity in the book. So what I, I bring that up right now to say this, it's very likely that what's being mentioned here in verse 5 and 6, Mordecai had been invited to this private feast. And he, as he's looking around, he's writing down and recording what he saw and experienced. And so Mordecai was on the inside track. He saw the excess. He saw the manipulation. And yet shortly he will stand against uh, even the edict of this king. And so uh, we see this willingness um, to navigate it on the part of these in the book. Now, may I just say this by, by way of application today, and we'll move on. While we may not be as resourced as the power brokers in our day who defy our God, we have access to a God and we serve a God who owns everything forever. And so what they may have permission to use for a few years or months, ultimately he owns it all. And I want you to go to James just for a moment. We'll now and then go to the New Testament just to shine a bit of light on this Old Testament text as New Testament believers. James chapter 5, can I give you just one verse? Because I don't know if the wealth of this world and its conniving leaders bothers you, if it does you like it does me. But in James chapter number 5, this verse steadies my soul and, and recalibrates my focus when I tend to get bothered by and stand down to those uh, who misuse what God has given to them. James chapter 5, and if you would please, verse number 7. Now, James was written to exiles, which is basically what... Um, Esther and Mordecai and those that would have been their fellow Jews in Persia were. And he talks about the excesses of the rich. We studied through the book of James in our parking lot. Most of this we studied in our drive-in service a few years ago. But look at verse 7. After all this confrontation of rich men and their manipulations, notice in verse 7 it says, To the believer, be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, a husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and the latter rain. And so in verse 7, James turns to the believers after confronting the wealthy that have manipulated and in excess, have wasted and squandered what they've been given. He encourages the believer to be patient. What fuels our patience? God's coming back. And we stand in expectation. We stay faithful because we know he is shortly to return. And I would just say this last and we'll move on. Who, where's the Persian wealth today? I don't know exactly where it all has been meted out and handed off and you know, inherited by certain people, but I'm telling you, the Persians don't still have it. 
And so all wealth is just, it just it's, a pass, it's fleeting at best. Don't be over-bothered by those who have more than you and waste it and use it for their own angles. Keep your heart and focus upon uh, the Lord. Stand up when those in power, especially those who are corrupt, possess great wealth. All right, go back to our text now to verse 7. And this excess goes on, this powerful corruption. Verse 7, And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. Verse 8, And the drinking was (laughs) according to the law, none did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house, notice this, that they should do according to every man's Pleasure. Number two, stand up when those in power promote great carnality. Stand up when those in power promote great carnality. Um, I know Ethan's going to answer this to the positive who taught last week, but any other cat people out there besides the Kleins? Any other cat people? Any? Okay, a few of you. All right, now for those who, who are any anti-cat people in the room, I'm trying to create division. Oh, man, look at these people, Ethan. Pray for them. I'm actually a bit, I would maybe lean that way. Um, the other day, someone sent me this picture with the following caption. Can you tell what it is? Here, here is the caption. When you're comfy, but just a little bit too hot. You just, you know, you're in bed and you just stick your leg out. Um, it's a cat leg inside a cat house, Ethan. Cat. <laughs> That's weird. It is kind of weird. Some of you have nightmares now about that. But where you're comfy, but just a little... Have you ever done that? You're like warm, but you just want to get your toes or one leg out or one foot out. You know, one of the things that I think we struggle with as it relates to those in power when they're corrupt is we're trying to survive and they're just wasting. Like they have so much excess that they're just dabbling in things, just putting their foot out, if you will. Just they have so much comfort and convenience and we're like in survival mode. And sometimes when that is true, we tend to get our eyes off of God and what uh, he would have for us. And here in the text, he mentions two aspects of this, this carnality. First, if you're taking notes, jot this down, alcoholic carnality. So it's fueled by uh, drinking and alcoholism and living in excess in this area as well. With all that they had in resources, they throw much of it toward this, alcoholic carnality. I don't know I'm preaching in the choir when I say this, but a lot of carnality and alcohol, they go together, right? Um, I, I think the best way to avoid carnality and addiction is to abstain, and that we teach and preach that as a church, and God will have to work in you on that if that's not where you're at tonight. But often it leads in that direction, and our inhibitions begin to be worn down with the more that we imbibe. And so in verses 7 to 9, as is mentioned here, you see this drinking going on in verse 7 and 8 as we read. And then also in verse 9, Vashti, now we're introduced to the queen. It will become more central in just a moment. She's doing the same with the women uh, in the royal house. And so there's these great parties and raucous, uh, probably music and entertainment and all of it fueled by uh, this alcohol that's being ingested. Typically in this culture, there would be a limit Okay, we all come to this feast, and here's what you're allowed to drink to. And here we see that restraint being removed. Did you see that in verse 8 we read? Everybody just drinks as much as you want. Live it up, drink it up. Uh, There is no uh, constraints. There's no restrictions on how much they partake. Um, One of the things that I notice leaders doing in our day who are corrupt leaders is they, they give people what they want. They use that to accomplish their own agenda. And I think we see that in our day. It's, it's if you vote for me, I'll give you what you want. And if you vote for me, I'll remove what you don't like. And, and, and doing what the crowd wants and using that to consolidate um, their leadership and influence. And so uh, imagine Mordecai and Esther processing this and other Jews that would observe this raucous celebration. May we disassociate ourselves from that kind of approach. All right, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded uh, me human, uh, bistha, harbona, bigtha. That's a, that one cracked me up as I was making sure I could pronounce these tonight. Hey, we're going to name you. We love you. Your name is Bigtha. Uh, I don't know why this cracked me up. Uh, Abagtha, Zethar, Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, uh, the king, 
Notice this, here's now the first big pivot in the narrative to bring Vashti the king before the, uh, the queen, before the king with the crown royal uh, to show the people and the princes her beauty for she was fair to look upon. Number two, not only alcoholic carnality, sensual, sensual carnality. And obviously as alcohol increases, um, inhibitions, as I mentioned, those begin low, to be lowered and especially in the area of sexuality. And so this uh, begins to be, let's just cast off all restraints and bringing Vashti to flaunt um, her beauty before these drunken men. Um, and it, it's almost as if, and you see that in verse 11, the reasoning for it is she's fair to look upon. That, that was the motivation. This, this woman was a beautiful woman and a trophy wife, if you will, for this king. Uh, in fact, the name Vashti, if you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. Her name means the best. Vashti, that name in, in Persian, she just she was the best. She was the ideal. Whatever the ideal looking woman in that day was, she was the embodiment of it. And so we see uh, now the alcohol carnality leads to this sensual carnality. Now, according to the Midrash, which is one of, it's a, it's a Jewish book that kind of adds commentary to the Bible or interpretations of the Bible, um, according to that document, Xerxes, as you see in back in verse 11, for the queen uh, to come before the king with the crown royal, that she was called, and I'm not using trying to be um, whatever with this, but literally called her to come with nothing but the crown and to flaunt her sensuality and to put that right out there for those men. So you have this very sensual, um, fleshly, carnal moment um, and the powers that be seem to be doing whatever uh, they want. Now, notice what Vashti does. And we don't know her spiritual condition. We don't know a lot about her, but at least she had a line she wasn't willing to cross. But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. And so she refuses to be objectified, to be put into this situation. She refuses to go along with this drunken whim of the king. Now, a key point tonight, because this is gonna, we're going to come back to this, Persia was not a safe place for women. Um, I don't know that we appreciate fully, because I, I think one of the things that this series has done already in my mind is it's changed my view of Esther and Mordecai. It don't make them quite as great a heroes or heroines as I tend to and excuse away all of their shortcomings. But I also don't allow a romantic feel to be added between Esther and this king. He's a loser. He's a self-absorbed, insecure man, and we're going to talk more about that. There was not, and I, I've seen movies, A Night with the King, and so I don't, again, I'm just throwing out random things that I've seen over the years. Esther and this king, there was not that between them. Um, he was using her as he had Vashti, and so Persia was not a safe place uh, for women. In fact, females, including the queen, were just property. They were, they were objectified. They were used uh, at the whim of men. In fact, her only, really her only role in this chapter was to make the king look good. Hey, look at my wife. Look at what I have. And to prop him up. And so that was the, the vein of this carnality, this, this celebration that had been conducted by the power of the day. Now, here's what I find striking about this. Who is it? What gender is the one who stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with the powers that be and God uses to turn the tide? It's what? A woman. Isn't that interesting? So we start the story with women being used and manipulated, and then Vashti in a moment is going to be discarded. And yet God, I love how he does things. He uses the very thing that the king despised to turn his will. And I just want to encourage you tonight, whatever our world mocks, whether it's we as Christians tonight, we're still the means by which God's going to get his will done. And we can be marginalized and mocked and even abused and, and made fun of in our current culture and world. But for the young people and each of us at whatever stage we're at tonight, God can use us. And we see God doing that with uh, this dear woman, Esther. Uh, so don't buy the lie that, well, those in power are carnal and they're corrupt and they have all the wealth and we're just a bunch of losers. The end of the story has yet to be written. All right, one more New Testament verse, and then we'll come back to the second half of our chapter, Ephesians. Would you go there for a moment? This is key as well in this first week of our study. Ephesians chapter number 6 and verse 11. 
Ephesians 6, and if you would please, verse 11. And I'd like you to notice a refrain in our verses here as it relates to stepping up or standing. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. goes on to talk about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers, uh, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what's being described here in Esther chapter 1. Verse 13, wherefore, believer... Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, verse 14, stand, therefore. Do you catch that emphasis? Stand, stand, stand. So in the midst of battling embedded corruption in powerful places, we are called to not back down, but stay standing. We don't have to really walk forward. We don't have to advance it. All we have to do is just stay where we're called to stand. I don't need to fix what's going on in D.C. I don't need to fix what's going on in a lot of other settings that concern all of us tonight. My job is just to stand where I am and speak up with what influence I do have. That's my job. The corruption and the manipulation and the resources being wasted, uh, that is not my job. Now, go down to verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Notice the Spirit is stressed. So the world, they work in the flesh. All the fleshly resources and conniving, we stand in the Spirit. That's how we battle it. That's how we stand against it. That's how we step up when others are backing down. Stand in the Spirit. Stand in what God has promised and called us to. All right, let's go back to our text now to verse 12. So what does Ahasuerus now do uh, as he processes the refusal of his, king, uh, of his queen? Therefore, notice this, the king was very wroth and his anger burned in him. Number two, let's talk for a few minutes about powerful anger. So you have powerful corruption, that in the midst of that we need to stand. Number two, what about when there is anger? Um, Coming back from Israel a few weeks ago, um, I was going through Tel Aviv, and I don't know if you've ever been to security where they kind of like randomly choose people to do a more thorough search. I think I maybe touched on this briefly when I first got back. I, yours truly was the lucky guy, the fortunate guy to get that, just to prove we're being very thorough. And they literally almost just, my carry-on, they literally almost deassembled the whole thing. You know, they had all these um, tracing for whatever with the little tabs, you know, something that, that's explosive or whatever, and they kept checking and checking, and then the next guy would do it. I had five people, I think five people, that went through my carry-on over and over. I just stood there thinking, I'm not going to get all that stuff back in there. They just kept pulling it out and taking it apart. Um, and they're only speaking uh, Hebrew, which I think they were doing conveniently, you know, just because I couldn't understand them. So at the end of it, the thing that bothered him was my laptop. So I've had, I've had a laptop, several laptops, but this one I've flown with several. I mean, I flew there with it, and they just kept running it through the scanner, and there was something in the inside, in the keyboard. They kept pointing and saying things in Hebrew, and they run it through and run it through again. And finally, I could sense this is an issue, um, and I was starting to get frustrated. My flight's getting ready to leave. There isn't a one, one till tomorrow night from Tel Aviv, and so I was kind of trying to push them without making them totally angry. And it ended with them saying, you can go, but your laptop's going to stay for further. I'm like, no, you know, I'm like trying to fight. I'm, and so they ended with, we're going to put it in a box. They took like one layer of bubble wrap and wrapped it and then put it in this big box. I'm like, that thing is going to be like in crumbs by the time it gets back to me. But I was trying not to over enrage them because they had the power. Cavity searches, hold you for a week in hot, you know, isolation, whatever. I just, all those scenarios, I tried to be assertive without making them angry. But they had all the power. They knew the lay of the land. I didn't know. I'm just flying blind, literally trying to navigate this. Isn't it, isn't it a little concerning when you have angry people who also have the power? And we're going to see that in the balance of the text. And yet uh, Mordecai and Esther had to be willing to step up even in the face of the anger of the king. Later in chapter 7, we'll talk about it, but when, when Haman is exposed, it also talks about the rage of the king. Um, this king had a short fuse, and we see that beginning to be alluded to here in the text. And so this lethal combination of anger and power. Now, before we look at the specifics, may I remind you 
that power and anger combination will never go unchecked by our God who is sovereign. Let the heathen rage. God is still going to do what he planned on doing. And so may we not forget that when those who have the power also possess great anger, that that is still subservient to our God and our King and where ultimately things are headed. All right, let's talk about a few things as it relates to the story. Number one, jot this down, step up when those with anger possess great insecurity. So we see this being exposed with all the wealth and all the pomp and circumstance, we find a very insecure king. Step up or stand up when those with anger possess great insecurity. Um, Fear often is what fuels the anger of those in power. Um, I've heard this from several who have had positions of influence, especially in political circles. The moment you get it, you start worrying about losing it. Um, and, and those that right now feel like they have it all together and they get to call all the shots, there's also a great amount of insecurity that often possesses and controls uh, that person. And so we see that clearly in the text tonight. All right, so in verse 12, you notice there's a breach of etiquette. She doesn't do what the king has asked. Now notice verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, so, uh, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And next unto him was Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, Mamukin. We'll come back to him. He's going to speak in just a moment. The seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat first in the kingdom. Uh, in the kingdom. Here's the question. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by uh, the chamberlains. All right, let's talk about a couple things that insecure leaders do that we have to be willing to step up or stand up even in the face of. Number one, blame-shifting counsel. Blame-shifting counsel. Isn't it interesting? The only person that's blamed here is Vashti. Not the drunken fools, not the, the carnal, um, animal-like, beast-like men sitting at the table. It's her. It's her fault. All that's happened is because she didn't go along uh, to get along. And so we see them blame-shifting uh, where they themselves are at fault. Um, the blame is shifted to Vashti, not to the drunken and unreasonable king. Now, here's what I love about the story, though that's what happens. And they keep talking about the law. Isn't it interesting? I love how the Pharisees, actually I don't love, but it's, it's ironic to me that the Pharisees, when Judas comes back, remember with the blood money? It's not lawful for us to take what is innocent blood. And they're the ones who paid uh, Judas to betray Jesus. And so the selectiveness of what's lawful. One of the things I love about the story here is what they claim is lawful or ultimately is, is trumped by, is transcended by the law of God. In fact, we're reading the book tonight, the law of God, that says, nope, you guys aren't right. And the end of the story is what you claim as right and wrong is not what God declares ultimately to be right and wrong. And so they are ultimately exposed as we even read the story again tonight. All right, notice verse 16. And Mamukin answered before the king and the priest, Vashti, the queen, had not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. Uh, verse 17, For this deed the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands and their eyes, when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti, the queen, to be brought in before him, but she came not. Verse 18, likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day and all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. Number two, so there's blame shifting counsel. Number two, there are fearful conclusions. Fearful conclusions. Mimukin here speaks on behalf of the rest of the princes that we read, their names that are listed there. And he, he emphasizes that what Vashti has done is going to become contagious and other women will stand up against their kings and not do as they are bidden. Um, they will disobey their husbands. And so all these male assessments reach these fearful conclusions. Here we see that he amplifies it by bringing it to bear to him. And if you notice in verse uh, seven, or verse 18, likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes. Who are the king's princes? Mamukin is one of them. Um, I don't know if you're, aware, if you're familiar with a guy named J. Vernon McGee or not. I remember when I was in Bible college, I would I'd drive to work in the mornings while I was in school, and 
listen to his resonant voice as he would break down a text and whatever book he was in. J. Vernon McGee once suggested that this guy Mamukin in his commentary on Esther, that he was a hen-pecked husband, and he was trying to shore up some things at home through this edict. I find that hilarious, but also likely. He's saying the princes are going to be disrespected when they go home, and he probably been pecked to death as he was trying to figure out how to rein in his wife, and hey, here's a chance, let's make this edict. And just interesting how everybody's self-serving in the story. At least I think we can ascertain that. And some of you henpecked husbands out there, uh, however God applies that, okay, in your life. Um, but this fearful conclusion, uh, and you can hear, you can smell the fear in those words. Um, it's illogical, the, the sequence of their thoughts here. Um, and we're going to get to more of them in just a minute, but there is fear, there is insecurity, and if we don't rein things in, the whole world is going to come apart. That's kind of the spirit. They're, they're over-exaggerating. They're exaggerating the consequences of uh, this moment. Again, demeaning women, putting them in their place, uh, and again, God's going to answer that with uh, his heroine, Esther. May I just say this by way of application tonight? Remember that with all of their bluster, the leaders of this present world are often fueled by a deep abiding insecurity. See through the shell, see through the bluster, see through the loud speech and trying to overwhelm you with what they're saying. Stay the course by keeping your heart and mind stayed upon Jehovah. Listen to me, who precedes them and exceeds them. Someday there'll be nothing. There'll be a footnote to history and God, our God, will still be king. Let's associate with him. Let's not be overwhelmed by their insecurity and how they often threaten us in maybe our business setting or ministry setting or family setting. Be very careful with that as you view these insecure leaders. All right, lastly now, let's spend a few minutes in verses 19 to 22. And hopefully you're starting to catch the rhythm of our study as we work through narrative portions primarily here, but bring this to application in our lives. Look at verse 19. If it please the king, let there go uh, a royal commandment from him. All right, now they're really going to over-respond to this. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, and it cannot be altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Number two, step up when those with anger promote great publication. So they're about to broadcast or promote, step up when those with anger promote great publication. And I was trying to think about how this relates to us in our day because we don't send people on camels or horses to broadcast things. But both traditional media and now digital media, and I'm sure there's another iteration of media that we'll someday experience, they possess a lot of power in our day, don't they? Um, and they fuel a lot of the anger in our day. They pit us against each other. They pit us against others. And so um, we see this, this publication arm of a powerful uh, uh, kingdom that Esther didn't have and Mordecai didn't have. He had his own PR department. And it begins to push that in anger as he dismisses Vashti and begins to search for a replacement. And so we have to step up even when those with anger promote uh, great publication. Um, it's amazing to me, the power of media. Anybody can post anything. Um, Google our church. Google things that you know have integrity, at least from what you know, and just some random person will just throw a, a grenade your way just to get a reaction. Um, we have to get beyond that. We can't be bothered or over-distracted by that. There's something legitimate to address we do, but the publication arm of the world and its power and its anger uh, must not move us from stepping up. The only way I know to avoid criticism, and I think even you find it here, is to do nothing, to just back down. And I think some of us, if we're honest, we're not stepping up because we just don't want to deal with the heat. We don't want someone to say something about us or spread something about us. To do God's will means we need, in a healthy sense, a healthy, sanctified ambition. We're going to do something. We're going to step up. We're going to lead out. And whatever others say of that, we have to be willing to let some of that go. Trust God to deal with that in his time and way. All right, two things about that quickly. First, the public response. So we see this public response. You don't see Ahasuerus going to the private chambers of Vashti and resolving this. Uh, I would just tell you this as a counselor. 
If these men had been wise counselors, they would have told him to handle it in private. But instead, they blow it up further by broadcasting in a smear campaign to marginalize and minimize uh, this lady's integrity. And so we have to be careful. When others respond in a public manner, uh, may we not allow that to quiet us or back us down when we're supposed to still stand faithfully uh, for the Lord. Um, And so we see the uh, Mamukin and these other men, they set in motion this great public response, foolishly so, drunken still, probably the alcohol still in their breath and fogging their minds, and they begin this public assault of her integrity. Now, it's interesting in verse um, number 19, where it says, let it be written among the laws of the Persian and Medes that be not altered. That's a key phrase because these men were protecting themselves. If Vashti was ever reinstalled, these guys would have been deposed. So they're trying to protect themselves and prevent future consequences. And so they're being very self-serving and strategic in what they're doing publicly uh, around them. All right, lastly, notice the response of the king and those in his court, verse 21. And the saying, all that they advised the king, pleased the king and the princes. Of course, it pleased the princes. They're the ones that gave the advice. And the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Number two, and lastly, self-gratifying decisions. Self-gratifying decisions. Um, my wife has been, um, for some time, been in you know, knitting and crocheting and whatever else. I don't even know what you call some of the stuff that she does. But uh, this past Christmas, she did something for her class, and I wanted to show you this picture. She made um, donuts. So she spent literally... Uh, from like, I don't know, end of the summer till, I forget how many kids are in her class, but she knit the, the donut itself and then stuffed it and then put the sprinkling and the icing and all of that on it. And it was, it was just neat to see her put the love into that. And she gave her kids, I think, a gift card to Duncan or something with it, um, but gave her little sixth graders this donut. And she said just watching them walk around with it, you know, glowing as they carried it the last day of school before Christmas break, she had invested the time in that. Um, I know my boys were looking at him and saying, yeah, but you can't eat them. That was what they were thinking. I honestly, I probably was thinking the same thing. Do you know many times we make things for our own gratification? We, we, we knit things together, we create things, but if we're honest, it's really just for us. And I think as we look at our world and the powers that be, we often see them making decisions that are only self-serving. Um, the king here makes the decision, not because it's the wise decision, but because it pleases him. It's interesting, the phrase pleasing the king only occurs uh, nine times in the Bible. Two in the book of Nehemiah, remember where he's kind of conveying to the king of going back to Jerusalem. The other seven are in this book. Please the king, please the king, please the king. And I think we see in our day, that is uh, the lion's share of leadership. They're leading for themselves. They're not leading as servants. They're not doing what's right necessarily. They're doing it as self-serving leaders. And so in the midst of that, here's the tendency. We become cynical about leadership, and we don't lead ourselves. What's the best way to deal with self-gratifying leadership? Be different as a leader ourselves. Um, the best way to fill a, to, to, to empty something, you know, a glass full of, wa- of air is to fill it with water. The best way to, to supplant faulty leadership in our day is for us to lead. Let's stop sniping and criticizing others. Let's be the change in our homes and in our, our community and at work. And it's always about the boss and it's always about the loser that I'm under. What about our own leadership? Uh, and so the challenge before us is to persevere through all of this distorted and corrupt leadership by being faithful to what God has called us to. All right, lastly, verse 22, he sent letters into all the king's provinces. Back, if you will, in verse number one, it says there were 127 of them. So he sends out all of these letters according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language. The Jews would have received this as well, that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. So he has great resources at his disposal. Imagine the machine behind this to translate it, the resources to mobilize it, all of this ancient relay communication system, the Pony Express, if you will, of the ancient times. He had that at his disposal. Now, here's kind of a key thought tonight as we start bringing this to application. 
the very same system that's used to push this message in chapter 1 and later would be used by Haman to convey the peril and the judgment of the Jews would ultimately be used to convey the Jews could defend themselves. So the very system that the world had created and the powers of that day had created to push their narrative, God would use ultimately to convey to his people, I'm going to deliver you. And may I say tonight, all of the contriving and all of the manipulations of our day someday will become the kingdoms of this world, as Revelation says, will be the, become the kingdoms of our Christ and of his Lord of our God and of his Lord. And so we see clearly this allusion to it here in the text that this very system was used in a self-serving way would ultimately use to convey God's redemptive purpose. And so those today with the power of press and those behind it, though they cause us to doubt the word of God, his word and his spirit uh, will triumph. One last verse, 1 Peter 1. Would you go there as we close this out tonight? I hope this has sparked some thoughts in your mind and heart as it has mine. 1 Peter chapter 1, and if you would please, verse 24. Let's contrast the words of man, especially those in power, with the words of our God. 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse 24. For all flesh is as grass... And the glory in all the glory of man. So there's now those with the power and the glory. As the flower of grass, the grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. Verse 25, this would include the book of Esther. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Doesn't that soothe you? With all the words, we live in the information age and we're just inundated with data and, and assessments of that data that the word of God alone is what will endure forever. My son Ian recently, uh, I think it was their Christmas program, they did a black light program where the lights went down the auditorium and then they had along the front edge of the stage some black lights that were upwashing and they did a it had, they had like some music and narration, and then with white gloves, they would combine. Have you ever seen this? There's been some shows and things that, where they create images just with their hands, and they can create letters and symbols. And so they were doing this whole program in the dark, and just the white, the black light with the white gloves, it just it popped. It was very moving, the, the narrative that they used, uh, very creative. And I was thinking about that as it relates to the dark day in which we live. How are we to live in a corrupt world? How we live in a corrupt nation, we're not, we're not what we wish we were as a country. We, we don't have some of the moorings that maybe used to ground us as even Americans. Are we to blend in? Are we to assimilate? Are we just to back off? No, I think it's time to stand. And if there's any time to stand, it's right now. If there's any time to step up, it's right now. And I would remind you tonight, Mordecai and Esther, one of the things that's probably going to challenge your thinking, we're going to get to it in chapter 2, is Mordecai and Esther were guilty of blending in. They're eventually going to get pushed into a corner where they have to stand. But initially, Mordecai, if he's at this feast in chapter 1, he was, he was going along to get along. Esther goes to the palace, and they're kind of just trying to blend in to a corrupt culture. And ultimately, God challenged them, and they responded to that challenge by stepping up. May we as God's people not blend in. May we step up for his glory and honor. Last thought, and we'll pray. My cousin uh, lives in Augusta, Ohio. It's a huge, sprawling metropolis. I'm just kidding, over by Canton. Uh, there's no stoplights, at least last time I was there. And my grandma, her sister and her husband had a, called Manful Orchard. It's a big uh, orchard there, at least for Augusta standards. And there's a little shop, and you can stop by during warmer seasons. And my cousin, Rebecca, be my second cousin, posted this just yesterday, this quote. I love this. Quote, every gardener knows that beneath the cloak of winter lies a miracle. Every gardener knows that beneath the cloak of winter, as a true orchard manager that she is, lies a miracle. And can I tell you tonight, it's what we're doing right now in the winter season of life, literally with the snow all around us about to take over and hide our building from public eye, or some other frigid, I'm just, I'm in a holding pattern. I'm discouraged. Everything around me seems to be in ruins. Nothing I hoped and dreamed of 20 years ago has come true. I don't know. Whatever you're hitting up against that just, you can't get that breakthrough. Can I challenge you just beneath that, 
lies a miracle. But our goal and what we have to do is in the winter season, stay standing, step up, so that when spring comes, whenever that is, if it's the return of Jesus Christ and we hear a trumpet, or it's just a breakthrough in some area of this life and our journey with the Lord, we'll not regret that we stepped up during corrupt seasons. Here's the question, and we're done. We allow God to supernaturally help you to step up for his glory, even in corrupt seasons of powerful corruption and powerful anger. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight.